China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Eric Hunman, a senior research analyst at Blue Path Labs. Today we'll be discussing his recent article, Fearing Hardships and Fatigue, Refusals to Serve in China's Military, 2009 to 2018, which was recently published in the Journal of Contemporary China. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here, Jude. Thanks for having me. So I wonder if you can start out by telling us a little bit about yourself, your research interests. How did you get on the path of studying China? And then more specifically, how did you narrow down your scope of focus? Yeah, both great questions. So I guess the short answer is that I am a recovering academic. I went to grad school at the University of Chicago, where I studied China and spent five years as an assistant professor of political science at NYU Shanghai. So I was on the ground in China until the pandemic. But I'll go back a little bit because you asked about where my interest in China came from. And that was actually way back longer ago than I care to admit when I was living in D.C., working for a small think tank called the Center for Defense Information, which actually had a small China office and ran a now defunct China security journal. And I just got fascinated with how Chinese policymaking worked, how Chinese policymakers thought about the world, and how I might come to understand that better. That was kind of why I decided to go to graduate school. So in graduate school, I ran on dual tracks, right? I was very interested in these questions of security and the military, and particularly military decision-making and foreign policy, as well as deeply, deeply interested in China. China and learning the language. And so I spent quite a long time digging into both of those topics. And one of the things that came to fascinate me in my academic work was this question of what happens when officers disobey their orders? What happens when the military resists orders from leadership or what it resists orders from you know, people who are more senior in the military, things like that? So I spent a long time actually studying that in the Qing dynasty as in my more academic work, which was sort of looking at how these commanders during, I was looking at the Sino-French War, 1883 to 1885, I was looking at how they decided to dis- disobey their orders. And I would present this at conferences and get the question that, oh, well, this couldn't possibly happen in contemporary China, right? It's an authoritarian state. They control their military very tightly. They couldn't possibly disobey. And my answer was always that, well, I don't think that's true, but I don't actually have any data. And so I went to get the data. And that's where this paper came from, which I was sort of trying to make the case that the data is bad. It's a challenging question to answer, but there is still something that we can find out. And I think I was able to find out some important answers to that question. And I should say that you're actually working on a book, correct? That will be looking at the Sino-French War and the prevalence of disobedience there. So so looking forward to that. As you know, the hottest topic right now for people is the, the Sino-French War. So you'll... <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I am still working on the book. It's taking a backseat to some of the more contemporary issues that as China ramps up in importance to the United States, there's a lot of other fascinating questions to look at. So, But I do hope to publish it at some point. So we're going to dive back into that paper itself and the methodology, how you went about quantifying disobedience in the modern-day Chinese military. But first, I wonder if I can ask you a question about the PLA itself. And this will be relevant because what we're going to discuss throughout this is deeply enmeshed with politics and the Communist Party. So the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, unlike most modern militaries, which serve de jure and de facto and serve an oath of loyalty to a particular nation state or government, the PLA is different. And I wonder if you can tell us how it's different and how that impacts the PLA 
uniquely to other sort of nationalized militaries? Yeah, putting on my security studies hat, speaking of militaries in general, you're absolutely correct that often they are charged with protecting the people of their nation, right? And that creates interesting dynamics in terms of disobedience more specifically, but it also sort of charges them with a mission that is in support of the people. The Chinese military, of course, by all accounts, they do care about their compatriots, but as a matter of law and as a matter of origin and as a matter of ideology, they are a revolutionary army, right? They were founded in competition with another Chinese military during the Civil War, right? Right, and actually even further back, but they are sort of charged with maintaining the authority of the party itself. And so this comes into play in a lot of different ways. The highest level way I can think of would be to talk about the role of ideology in building the party, right? Unlike a lot of other militaries, the Chinese military, I think, truly believes that having proper ideology and adhering to the guidance of the party will enable them to be a more effective military. A lot of their mythology and a lot of their sort of stories that they tell themselves about the military are tied up in that revolutionary origin. And so that creates a lot of interesting dynamics that we can talk about more later with regards to the question of concern of the paper. But in general, yeah, it's a different beast. The paper looks at the number of quantifiable instances where you've had refusals to serve, insubordination in the military. What were the main underlying questions or puzzles to you as you began to do this work, in addition to the challenge thrown down by colleagues who looked at your other work and said, well, this can't happen today? Was it just that? Was there any other additional puzzles you were trying to get at? That was really the motivating factor for me to dig into this question in a sort of broad empirical sense, was to make the case that this is happening in China. But, you know, as I dug into it and started thinking about it more, there's a lot of things that this impacts in broader Chinese politics, right? One of the things that goes back to your question, actually, about the sort of nature of the PLA and its relationship with the party is that party army relations in China, or what we might call more broadly civil military relations, are deeply impacted by this dynamic, right, in which you have to figure out as a leader in the party, how to make this very powerful set of experts in violence, the PLA, obey you, right? So that's one thing that came into play there. Another thing that I was convinced of, but I don't think everybody in the field was convinced of, was that the PLA is not as different from the rest of Chinese society as we might often like to think, right? That there's a lot of these studies of what happens in Chinese politics, dynamics of central local relations, things like that, that people sort of don't look at in the same way in the case of the military. And I was convinced that there was going to be evidence of that happening in the military as well. I argue that I found it, but it's sort of arguing for a different way of looking at the role of the military in society, and in particular, Chinese society. So those are the kind of big questions that I was concerned with. I was also curious about the role of the military in the generation of foreign policy in China. I didn't get a ton of data that allowed me to answer that question very well, but I do have some things to say about it once we get into the meat of the paper. Yeah, we're going to dig into the main findings in two seconds. Just one other bridge building question, which is just on methodology. How does one go about trying to quantify insubordination in the People's Liberation Army, given how just how deeply opaque the information environment is? Yeah, this is one of the most, one of the hardest things to address in terms of writing the paper, especially for an academic audience, is to figure out how to get data that actually means anything in a context that is so controlled like China's, right? And so what I ended up doing, I was actually on the ground in China and a little bit leery about writing a paper like this there. But, you know, back in 2017, 2018, when I started this, things were not as tense as they are now, shall we say. But one thing that I knew that I did not want to do that would have been helpful was do interviews with with officers and recruitment people and things like that. I 
I ended up not doing that. I ended up relying entirely on written sources. So the core of the work was drawing on this decade-long search from 2009 to 2018 of the China National Knowledge Infrastructure, where I just did a search for basically the two key terms that describe this phenomenon in Chinese discourse most broadly, which is Taobing, deserter, and Zhufu Bingyi, which is you know, refusing military service. So I searched for those in CNKI, and I also did sort of spot searches in Bing and Zhuhu and a number of other places to see what else I could find to supplement it. And unfortunately, we're now in an era where even doing that on CNKI might be problematic, which we at CSIS have, have had our subscription to CNKI cut off. So you've got this now, you've been able to find these instances of insubordination through primary source searches. So I wonder if you can just, at a high level and getting to the meat of it, what is the sort of elevator description of your main, your main <laughs> findings? Sure. So I ended up finding 236 individual cases of refusals to serve in the PLA. And there's a number of different stories I can tell about that data. It's actually really fascinating and rich in a lot of ways. But there are kind of four key takeaways. The first is that it's very clear that this kind of refusal to serve is more common than the public reports would indicate. So that's just to say that I do not think that there have only been 236 cases of this in the decade from 2009 to 2018. It's pretty clear for a number of reasons I'll talk about later that there's more than that. So that's the first finding. The second is that portrayals of these refusals to serve are being laid out in a very specific way. They're being portrayed as rooted in youth, inexperience, and misunderstanding. So I'll talk more about what that means in a little bit. The censors are clearly controlling this story very carefully, and I think that's important. Third is that military party and state officials both see refusals to serve as a problem and are working closely together to respond to that problem. And then finally, policy responses to the problem very widely and involve local experimentation. So we're not just getting a national level law that says this is what you do in response to this problem. You're getting a lot of experimentation and sort of policy changes, basically. Can you give us a contextual, and I know on in the paper, you've got just an exemplary case in Anning City in Yunnan, but just for the listener, that or other ones, just what is an instance of this insubordination? Is this walking away from military bases? Is this just refusing to follow a simple order, or does it run the entire gamut? So it runs the gamut in terms of what they're refusing to serve in response to, I think. But the archetypical type of case here, and it is, I think, an archetype because things are censored so carefully here, is that relatively young soldier enters the military, either as a conscript or as a volunteer, there's cases of both in the data, and then discovers, oh, actually, military service is pretty challenging. You have to make a lot of sacrifices. There's a lot of subordination of the self to the organization, things like that that, you know, younger people don't typically like very much. And so we have this frustration that's described. And then for some reason or another, whether it's an order they don't like, whether it's just that things are too hard, whether they miss their family, they decide to refuse to fulfill the terms of their service. Sometimes that involves not going to training. Sometimes that involves involves literally leaving the country, but they refuse to fulfill their obligation to the military. And then typically, the story is about the recruitment officer and the commander, sometimes the political commissar coming in and saying, all right, you actually need to obey. You need to sort of come to heel and you need to do what you promised to do. And they'll talk about doing thought work. They'll talk about bringing parents in to try and convince them. And then often in these cases that are reported, this young person simply does not choose to obey. And then they are punished very severely in a variety of different ways. That's kind of the archetype of what goes on here. There's a lot of more specifics I can get into, of course. One of the interesting things is because, as you admit, you're dealing with what we know to be an incomplete picture because you're seeing essentially the uncensored or the manicured mentions of this. So there's obviously intentionality in shaping the perception. 
One of the things that comes out is you have a graph on page five, which shows from 2009 to 2018, the mentions of refusal of military service by year. And there's a pretty staggering linear trajectory upward from just a few instances in 2009 to dozens and dozens. How do you read that? Because on the one hand, it could be, oh, well, there are just more people refusing to serve in Xi Jinping's China or late era Xi Jinping, well, probably actually in early era Xi Jinping in 2023. But five or six years in, there's more people refusing to serve. The other could be that they're trying to now promulgate, get out in the into the information environment, these stories. So how do you read that trajectory on the graph? I'm really glad you asked that question because I think about this a lot. And I think there are probably two key things going on. And some of them are kind of paradoxical with other aspects of China, which I'll talk about. But one, I think, of course, we have the military reforms that Xi Jinping initiated in late 2015, early 2016. My impression of the reform effort that Xi Jinping started in 2015 to 2016 is that one of its components has been to deal with the problem of loyalty in the military more directly. Right. So we don't really have any explicit indication of that in the open source literature that I'm aware of, but it does seem to match with the timeline of what my data shows. Second is there's actually been a very explicit turn, and I think somewhat, something of an ironic turn in terms of dealing with this specific problem, which is that they've decided the best way to do it is to actually publicize more cases. Right. So there's explicit mention in a number of journals and a number of articles and some discussions by journalists that previously cases like this, as my data shows, were pretty rare in the open source, right? They were not reported openly very often. But there's been a decision at some point to actually do that more publicly. And I think this dovetails in interesting ways with the interest throughout China, I would say, in using these kind of social credit scores or blacklist type measures to enforce policy, right? The military is no stranger to that. The number of officers who write commentaries on these cases of desertion and refusals to serve who mention, oh, yeah, one good way to deal with this would be to actually publicize it and, you know, put a black mark on their personal record and things like that, it's very, very common. And so we see this kind of move towards more public management of a policy problem internally in China. At the same time, we from abroad look at China and see a lot of closing down of information access and things like that, right? So there's this kind of irony in the way that they're dealing with it in the larger context of what's going on in Chinese politics, I think. I'm not sure there's a connection here, but I'll throw it out in case there is. In the party ranks, there's been an effort started right away when Xi Jinping came to power to redefine what membership in the Communist Party looked like. Weed out bad members. So you saw a a quota put in place by Xi Jinping in early 2013 to shrink the annual net growth of the Communist Party significantly from, I think in in Hu Jintao is growing at, my number might be off here, but it was like three to four percent And it's been controlled through the quota system under Xi Jinping, sort of drastically shrinking to some years net zero, 1%. And around that has been a messaging campaign about if you were looking for a party where you were going to get an Audi, gorge on the public trough, this ain't for you. What comes through in your paper is a lot of the shaming of these deserters or these insubordinates is painting them as lazy, not up for the hardship. So part of it could be dissuading people like that to come in. Part of it it might also be signaling to others and society at large what you should expect of of the PLA. Is there any overlap in trying to essentially reforge these two bodies, the Communist Party and the PLA, after years of 
Again, the PLA in the 1990s was a was a company essentially, right? It was a graft Absolutely. machine, yep. and so this is sort of the spike in mentions of refusal to service and and the willingness to open up the spigot slightly on the information space to get these cases out there is a similar motivation behind the the campaign to sort of redefine what it means to enter into the Communist Party. Yeah, there are actually pretty exact parallels with what they're doing to the military post-2015-2016. I should say that the effort to get higher quality personnel, particularly college graduates, into the PLA goes back much farther, right? That's not a factor of the new reorganization and reform. As far back as 2010, there were campaigns saying that, you know, we must make it easier for college students to get into the military. We need them to increase our capabilities, things like that, right? So that's been one consistent concern. Another thing that parallels here Right, is that as part of these reforms that were initiated in 2015, there's been a big push to shrink the army. Right, They want to make sure that they can pay people better. They want to be able to train them better. And that necessitates a smaller force in a lot of ways. The army for many years, of course, was viewed as this kind of iron rice bowl where you join, you get a paycheck for life, and you don't have to worry about much, including training or realistic exercises or anything like that. Right, They're trying to change that. And that's, I think, very much in parallel with what they're trying to do with the party at large. They're trying to sort of maybe not shrink the party as a whole, but they're trying to limit its growth. They're trying to make sure it's higher quality people. And they're trying to make sure people are more loyal to the organizations. It's a, a consistent theme, I would say, across a number of sectors of Chinese society, including the military. I want to switch focus now to some of the implications of this work. And I know you have a number that you explore at the end of the paper. The one that immediately sticks out to me and is one that I know a lot of us have talked about and is a known unknown is what is the actual morale and cohesion and effectiveness of the PLA when it's under duress? And we don't have really good evidence on that. We're studying 1979. We're studying border skirmishes with the Soviet Union. And your paper gets to this in a way. One of the things that you reference here, which I don't think I actually knew, or I, if I knew, I forgot, but I probably didn't know was in 2016, a few battalions of Chinese peacekeepers in South Sudan fled, left their post. And this was, they. I think the PLA denied it, but it was backed up by some external reporting and, and some work of a, of a nonprofit here. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. And, and also just your own, what does that event mean to you, these larger questions? I mean, we could box it and just say, it only means that what happened happened. Does that raise any tantalizing issues to you about once the sort of rubber meets the road, you've been drilling, you've been doing joint exercises, but you've never actually faced combat or at least duress. Does that tell you anything about the PLA writ large? Yeah, I guess I would say it tells me two things in, in two different ways. One is in the context of the paper, right? As I alluded to earlier, the portrayals of these types of refusals to serve are really being told as this is a problem with young people who have just entered the military, right? And so only having the Chinese language data from the mainland, we might assume, oh, well, all right, so that's all that's happening, right? That's not a big problem with the loyalty of the entire military. It's like it's just millennials whinging about having to put a shovel in the ground is the story the PLA is trying to send. Yeah, it's very much 
kind of an echo of the kind of, oh, these are just woke kids who don't know what they're doing, right? That sort of thing. <laughs> but having this kind of case of peacekeepers is important because the Chinese typically send their best abroad for peacekeepers, right? Courtney Fung has shown this pretty conclusively in her own work, that these peacekeepers were not likely to be sort of callow soldiers who were not well-trained and were never loyal before. They were likely to be the best of the best precisely because they're being sent abroad. China wants to put its best foot forward, right? So in terms of the empirics of the paper, that case is really important to me in saying, actually, there's control of this narrative, right? The censors are exerting themselves in this case. And therefore, it's not likely that the picture that they're portraying is the entire picture. So that's just to say that I do think that there are other cases of higher level disobedience. We see some trickling out in terms of these very high profile allegations against people like Guo Xiang, Xu Saiho, things like this. So that's one answer to that. The other answer is this larger question of, you know, what will happen to the PLA in the case of a conflict over a Taiwan scenario or something like that, right? And I think that this kind of data about resistance to service is one component of a very unsatisfying constellation of signals that there might be major morale problems with the PLA, right? We can't see it. They're not going to let us see much of these kind of larger systemic level problems. But I do think this type of paper in combination with work, some of it coming out of China, the mental health issues amongst uh, people in the PLA, things like that, the enormous problems they're having with implementing joint training, and then beyond that, implementing realistic joint training, that's been a huge drag on morale. The shrinking of the army has caused huge problems in terms of interrupting career paths for people in the army, in terms of making people feel like they don't know what they're doing in their new roles, things like that, not knowing what they're doing with their new kit. So none of this is conclusively to say that the PLA would fall apart in a conflict like that. I, I actually don't think that's necessarily likely, but I do think it's a possibility that we should rate higher in our analyses of how effective the PLA is likely to be in a conflict like that. I was just actually thinking of a pretty obvious caveat to the implication of my question was, of course, just because a battalion of seasoned PLA soldiers refuse to engage in South Sudan might be a factor of them not believing in a mission. That doesn't necessarily carry over if there's actual combat in China's immediate periphery or even over the issue of Taiwan. You, you might see a completely different set of calculations. So your point is definitely taken of we might want to rate this higher in our analysis but also not drawing too much, as I am often guilty of doing, from individual case studies to extrapolate more widely. I mean, but again, built in with some of the other work that you've done and many others have as well, it does sort of raise a pretty important question of, we can see the hardware of the PLA, we can look at how they perform in joint exercises and drills, we can see them in the information space, but in the same sense of the United States is constantly in conflict and has been. And so we've got just extraordinary amount of data, but also lived experience where we don't have that with the PLA. Yeah, and I think one important thing to raise with the point about the mission mattering, right? I think that's absolutely true. That's been established in a number of other militaries and security studies and things like that. The Taiwan question, though, and I'm not the first person to raise this, is a complicated one for the Chinese, right? So on the one hand, yes, it's a crucial national mission. It is something that they've been sort of mythologizing for a very long time now, and that is very important to a number of people in China, but also they're being portrayed as Chinese, and so there will be questions about like, well, how do we feel about attacking our compatriots? How do we feel about going into a conflict like that? I think it could go either way. I do think you're right that, you know, the mission of fighting the, the strong enemy, quote unquote, in the case of a Taiwan conflict, the, the US in this case, would be different than, you know, protecting civilians at a site in South Sudan that these Chinese peacekeepers probably don't have much investment in. Absolutely, there's a difference there. 
the other implication of the paper is about the extent of Xi Jinping's control over the military. But actually, a more interesting implication that you raise in the paper is the costs of coup proofing. That is, when you put as the primary objective regime security, is in security of the party, but more increasingly, security of the party's leadership. You might make choices for how you structure the military, the onus you put on the military for ideological training, how you make personnel decisions. You might at the margin make those differently than if your primary objective was creating a fighting force that can fight and win wars in the 21st century. Could you talk a bit about what are some of the known knowns about what the PLA is required to do, given that it's a party army, that might potentially come at the cost of of fighting effectiveness? Yeah, it's a great question. And this kind of goes back to my dual hats in both general security studies and in China more specifically, is that some of the work in security studies on authoritarian militaries versus democratic militaries is pretty clear that at least those scholars think and argue rather effectively, I would say, that authoritarian militaries are going to pay a cost in terms of their fighting power because they have to guard themselves at home, right? And that sort of translates naturally into the Chinese context where there are a lot of issues with protest, with what they call separatism, things like this. And so those they actually have to devote force to managing, right? And so the PLA is not always going to be tasked with these. They have the People's Armed Police. They have a number of other police forces as well as militia forces and things like that. But the PLA is also ultimately charged with guaranteeing stability and national unity, right? So that is one thing that they have to be careful of. And we also see that in terms of the battle that the CCP has been engaged in over the past at least 20 years to ensure that the PLA is a world unto itself that will not obey orders, right? So we saw this in the attempt to divest the PLA from its own businesses. We're seeing this in the attempt to cut down on corruption. There have been repeated waves of investigations, and we're actually seeing one right now, which we can talk about shortly, I think, where they have to think about, okay, so we don't just have to worry about getting people into place who are really effective at their jobs in terms of fighting and training and things like this, right? We also have to get people in place who are willing to forego perhaps the monetary benefits of corruption and things like that, much less their worries about generals potentially accruing too much power to themselves and fomenting a mutiny or something like that. I don't think that's likely, but I do think it's something that the leaders of the CCP do think about and worry about, especially post-1989, right? You know, other things, you mentioned these in the paper, the amount of ideological propaganda education that officers, actually all, all enlisted members, but especially the higher up you go, the more the sort of onus of politics weighs on you. I think about things like the dual command structure, where you have, like on the bridge of a PLAN destroyer, there's a commissar who has dual authority with a commanding officer. And how does that you, the audience can't see it, but behind me, I have a poster for the Hunt for October. And of course, the key development there is that Captain Ramius kills the political commissar before he can defect and take the ship, which shows, and that was the one kind of key movie makes. I don't want to base everything I know about the PLA off of Hunt for October, but you know, it, it does show you the, the sort of complexities of that relationship, which we can imagine a scenario where the political commissar has a different sense of what the right action that, you know, a ship or battalion should make than the commanding officer. And then one of the things you and I were just talking about, you just referenced is thinking about what's going on in the PLA rocket force right now. You've removed two senior commanders and you have moved in one senior commander from the Navy, one from the Air Force. 
who, as far as we can tell, have no experience with the rocket force. That decision might, at the margin, make more sense from a coup-proofing demonstrated loyalty, or at least if you're worried about there being a little fiefdom in the PLARF that this brings in. Again, SOEs do this all the time. You'll just, out of the blue, one day the head of an energy SOE will suddenly become the head of a food and grain one. So not ordinarily how we would think would be the best personnel decision, but I would imagine the party leadership is weighing not just effectiveness and efficiency, but, but other regime stability characteristics. Yeah, I guess I would say two things in response to that. One is about the role of political commissars in the PLA more generally. It's absolutely fascinating, right? So in peacetime, they sort of function as a chaplain, right? They're, of course, responsible for ideology and sort of managing that part of training in the PLA, but they're also responsible for making sure home life is okay so that that doesn't become a source of dissent or disloyalty or something like that. They're kind of social workers in a sense, right? And they have equal power with the operational commander during peacetime. During wartime, they get degraded a little bit and the operational commander has full control. But what that actually means in the case of a conflict is very unclear, right? Because these soldiers are going to be used to obeying orders from the commissar as well. And figuring out what that means in a conflict context will be very, very difficult. So that's kind of the general thing I would say about political commissars. Fascinating. And the case of the stories about the PLA rocket force, I think it's also interesting. I think it was actually Xu Xisheng, the one, the new one from the Air Force, who was from a political commissar background, right? So I think that's not irrelevant here, that they're interested in bringing someone who knows about this kind of inculcation of loyalty in the way that they want them to, they're putting him into power in the PLA rocket force, which of course has seen a huge influx of both money and importance over the last six, seven years, something like that. So this is, to me, reads very clearly as a concern about the PLA rocket force kind of running off on its own, becoming corrupt at best and disloyal at worst, right? We don't really know which it is at this point. And so they're trying to figure out a way to manage that, which is going to run contrary to, as you highlighted, the demands of operational efficiency and the demands of effectiveness in terms of running the forces, right? It's not very likely that someone from the Navy is going to have a great sense of the new organization of the PLA rocket forces, at least right now, right? So you finished this paper. I'm curious, what are the outstanding questions or puzzles that you think need to be answered about any of these issues, organizational integrity, loyalty, cohesion, fighting effectiveness? What sort Mm -hmm. of are the things you want to work on next or you think need to be worked on? Yeah, for me, this paper brought up, I think, three things that if I have the time, I would love to dig into. If somebody else does, I encourage them to because they don't have a ton of time these days. The first is this very consistent mention by people in the PLA of using the sort of constellation of social credit schemes in China to manage the military specifically. I would love to dig into that and see you know, where that's coming from, what that means in a larger sense. I just I don't have any sense of what it means now. I haven't had a chance to dig into it. Another thing I think this highlights is this role of cooperation between civilian and military authorities in China, right? So many of the listeners of this podcast are going to be familiar with the debate about civil military fusion, military civil fusion in the Chinese, right? That there's sort of this argument that the civilian sector and the tech sector in China should be cooperating with the military to bring in some of their more advanced technology and things like that to help improve the military. 
But one of the things this paper drove home for me in terms of looking at the punishments for deserters and refusals to serve is that there's a lot of cooperation happening between civilians and the military in a lot of other ways, right? So for instance, some of the punishments include a ban on issuing permits to found new businesses for people who have deserted, right? That requires cooperation with a number of different authorities, not all of them military. And so I think expanding our understanding of this kind of fusion of civilian and military in China might be really fruitful in understanding both what the PLA is doing at large and what civil military relations look like more generally, but also these kind of very interesting differences in what the localities are doing, how they're handling things differently and how they're experimenting in terms of policy. So that's the second one. And then the third one, I think, is actually that question about the role of localities, right? The tendency of many people who want to understand the PLA, and I'm not speaking about experts necessarily, I'm speaking about policymakers and things like this, is to say the PLA wants to do this, China wants to do this. But when I'm coming from a perspective of looking at on-the-ground reports of individuals choosing to do things differently, you see a lot of this interesting variation in terms of what's going on. And I would really encourage people who have the time and wherewithal to look into what this variation looks like and what it actually means. There's been a lot of interesting work on this in terms of environmental policy, even foreign policy, describing how, for instance, provinces drive national-level policy in some cases, right? So I think looking at that in the case of the military would be really fruitful as well. Great, great research projects, Eric, and really a fantastic paper, which I, I learned a lot reading, but also raised some really important questions that certainly merit further exploration. I think for me, the big puzzle is on some of these intangibles that we were just discussing, like how much does politics interfere with the organizational resilience and fighting effectiveness of the PLA, you almost have to chalk this up to a, we'll never know. And so you can overestimate- we hope we'll never know. <laughs> we hope we'll never know. Sorry, yeah. good way of phrasing it. We might never know to a sufficient satisfaction before we end up seeing. And so it does make it hard to know how you assign probabilities, values, or, or quantify the extent to which politics interferes with the PLA, right? Or how low morale is- but certainly, I think your research and the work of others shows just how deeply enmeshed politics is in the PLA. So, Eric, thank you very much for your time today and really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks so much, dude. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 